Wage labor, which refers to employment in which someone agrees to work for someone else in exchange for money, contrasts with what came before, often arrangements that had people working land that was technically owned by someone else, like a monarch, local lord, or some other type of government, or situations in which folks either ran their own trades, like blacksmith or baker, and then took on apprentices who were usually paid some kind of small wage, alongside having their food and shelter provided by the person to whom they were apprenticing. The understanding being that they were mostly working for that person in exchange for the knowledge and skills they would acquire, which would then allow them to start up their own smithy, their own bakery, or maybe take over the one at which they were apprenticing at some point in the future. Most common, though, throughout most of human history, was a lifestyle built around agriculture. And for a long while, that meant agriculture for bare subsistence, just growing enough to feed you and your family, and maybe a little bit more if you were lucky. And then later, it came to mean something more akin to serfdom, where folks would work the land, keep some of what they harvested for their families, and then give the rest a fair amount, to whatever government they existed under as a tithe or a tax. Most people were tied to the land in this way, and the government would trade those agricultural products that they received from their serfs to procure other sorts of goods. So there were people working for wages back then, but it wasn't the most common arrangement throughout all of human history, and most people just worked to produce food, and a relative few were able to do something more specialized than that. This dynamic changed somewhat during the period we now typically call the Industrial Revolution, as it occurred throughout the UK and Europe, and during similar periods of some type of industrialization in other locations around the world. Suddenly, you could hire and train people en masse, on scale, and you could put them all to work within or around the same infrastructure. In the beginning, that typically meant in a workshop or a factory or a textile mill, and later it came to also mean working at the same supermarket or Amazon warehouse. Previously, the only infrastructure that allowed for this kind of commodification of labor were farms and similar raw produce-related assets. Early on, this setup tended to be heavily slanted toward the employer. They, after all, were providing this opportunity to have a steady, predictable income, which wasn't a super common thing back before this type of labor standardization. Eventually, though, the demands placed on workers within these sorts of mostly manufacturing-dominated industries began to have real social ramifications. Back in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, especially in England, textile factories would work their employees, some of them children, 16 hours a day, six days a week, which, as you can imagine, came to shape essentially every aspect of society, from education to relationships to birth and death rates. There were exceptions to this dynamic, 
even early on, perhaps most notably in Spain, where Philip II in 1593 declared that workers would only have to work eight hours a day, except for miners who would work seven hours a day. This ostensibly applied in Spanish colonies in the Americas as well, though enforcement thereabouts and throughout parts of Spain seemed to have been hit and miss. Regardless, though, this was a fairly novel concept that took the changing work-life balance of these employees into account as early industry began to spread around Europe, and it pointedly said in the edict that the reason for this change was so that folks essentially wouldn't work themselves to death. Or using the words of the edict itself translated into English, quote, All the workers will work eight hours a day, four in the morning and four in the afternoon, in fortifications and factories, which the hours are to be made distributed at the most convenient times to get rid of the rigor of the sun, and more or less what seems to be right to the engineers, so that not missing a point of the possible work, it is also attended to ensure their health and conservation." By the early 19th century, a small movement focused on legislating a 10-hour workday began to bubble into the public consciousness in Scotland. That movement eventually refocused on an 8-hour workday, operating under the increasingly popular slogan, 8 hours labor, 8 hours recreation, 8 hours rest. That ambition was not realized at first. In 1847, women and children in England were granted a 10-hour workday. The following year, all French workers netted themselves the same. In the wake of the February Revolution in 1848, the revolution that toppled the French monarchy and kicked off the French Second Republic, and for context, that is the one that was shaped in part by Napoleon and his various conquests. During That same period, though, there were rumblings of broader-based workers' rights-related agitation throughout the workforce in England as well. The Chartist movement, named for the People's Charter of 1838, which introduced a variety of legal concepts that would give laborers more say and power within the government, and which became a prominent manifesto for laborers even if the demands made within it were not particularly new, This movement helped spark the initial wave of trade unions that would eventually flourish throughout the Commonwealth states, leading to eight-hour workdays in New Zealand and Australia in the 1840s and 50s. The same workday limitations also spread over the next handful of decades throughout Asia, South America, and individual corporations and portions of nations throughout Europe. Though most of what we might loosely today call the Western world was a bit slow on this particular undertaking, not legislating eight-hour workdays for most or all laborers until the early 20th century, generally right after World War I, so the 19-teens and early 1920s. In the United States, a few early labor unions and pseudo-labor unions, gained workers within their specific industries and geographies, like ship carpenters operating out of Boston, 
eight-hour workdays, but most laborers had to wait until 1869, when then-President Grant issued the National Eight-Hour Law Proclamation, which didn't change things all at once but did provide many workers more legal support when their employers tried to take advantage of them and work them ultra-long hours each day. More impactful in terms of practical outcomes, was a move by the U.S.-based Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions to define a legal day's labor as eight hours from 1886 onward. This began to tilt a lot of industries toward this practice over the next two decades, at which point successful strikes in factories, churning out equipment for the ongoing U.S. World War I effort, spread the eight-hour day limitation still further though this remained most impactful across the U.S. Northeast, where most of U.S. industry was still clustered at the time. Despite all those movements and strikes and union efforts, though, the U.S. did not get a universal, federally mandated eight-hour workday until 1937, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was proposed as part of then-President FDR's larger New Deal concept. This act applied to about 20% of the U.S. labor force directly. It set a maximum work week of 40 hours, and it allowed folks to work overtime, provided that they are paid accordingly. This act also carved into law aspects of our eventual contemporary legal labor environment, especially as it applies to employing children and paying a minimum wage, which at the time was set to 25 cents an hour, which is about $4.60 an hour when converted into 2020 dollars. What I'd like to talk about today is a collection of variables that seems to be feeding into a sort of modern labor movement. Why these variables are arising, or maybe just becoming more prominent right now, and what might happen as a consequence of their emergence. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In the halcyon days of right before the COVID-19 pandemic, conversations about employment were fairly conventional, relatively straightforward and aligned with other first quarter of the 21st century discussions of such things, both in topic and tone. A headline from Reuters back in early December 2019, for instance, reads, quote, Strong U.S. job growth showcases economy's resilience, end quote. That whole piece is basically about how most people in the United States are employed, according to then-recent numbers. The highest growth in recorded job acquisition in about 10 months, due in part to the healthcare industry and General Motors both going on hiring sprees, the latter in the wake of a strike that had just ended. The underlying tone of this article, though, was that these numbers which showed non-farm payrolls increasing by 266,000 jobs in November alone, were a pretty good sign, both for the economy, but also implicitly for the then-in-office Trump administration's record on such things. 
There were downswings. There were stiff winds from the ongoing trade conflict with China. But things were looking up and headed toward an election year. And for chronological context, Trump wouldn't be voted out of office for another 11 months. At that time, these numbers seemed to be pretty solid. If he wanted to capitalize on the idea that he was a president who was good for business and the economy, and thus should get another term in office. It's strange to look back on journalism from that moment in history, because we were then unaware of what was about to happen. Like the protagonist in a horror movie who cannot see the shadows lurking behind them the way that we, the audience, can. We are now, the audience, looking back at that moment, seeing the shadow of COVID approaching, and similarly unable to do anything about it. We continued obsessing about job numbers in this same way, pretty much up until mid-March of 2020, when the reality of the situation that we faced as a global community finally started to show up in the collective unconsciousness here in the United States. The NBA canceled its upcoming season. Actors Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson announced that they had contracted COVID, and the Trump administration banned travel from Europe to the United States all on a single day, March 11th. And that's when the conversation at water coolers around the country shifted. And soon, so did the water coolers, many of them becoming virtual, ostensibly, at first at least, temporarily. And then eventually, as the reality of the situation sunk in yet further, and the economy began to spin around a new center of gravity, many of us became accustomed to our new COVID realities. Whether that meant work had moved to our couches and laptops, or whether that work now involved completely different responsibilities and risks than before or whether it meant that whole swaths of the economy from dine-in restaurants to gyms and meatpacking plants were now shutting down, periodically or permanently. The situation, globally, in that moment, each country and region arriving at that moment at a different time, based mostly on their local politicians' attitudes toward the impending plague, and based on when and how dramatically the infections began to spread in newsworthy numbers in their neck of the woods. But eventually, in all cases, the situation changed fairly dramatically, and seemingly overnight, even if that overnight happened at different times, on different dates. And suddenly, the conversation was more about how many jobs were lost, not how many were gained, and just how much the local and global economy would suffer, and how we might avoid still worse levels of suffering, rather than whose political fortunes would be influenced by which weekly batch of numerical data. In October of 2020, here in the United States, the final jobs report before Election Day was released. And it showed a whopping 661,000 positions were added in September. Again, compared to a seemingly, at the time, pretty stellar 266,000 back in November of 2019. And that figure was greeted with a groan from most economists and politicians who had begun to watch these numbers for their political significance once more at this point. 661,000 jobs were added back into the economy, sure, but that only brought unemployment levels down to 7.9%, which was absolutely an improvement. It was about 8.4% a few months prior, in August, but it was at 3.5%. 
in November of 2019. Things had changed substantially in that preceding period, and numbers didn't mean what they once meant within this new pandemic-era context, all of which helps explain why the article I would like to unspool today is particularly interesting right now. It comes from Quartz, and it's entitled, American Workers Are Quitting at the Highest Rate in Decades. Remember how I said 661,000 jobs were added to the economy in the U.S. back in October of 2020? In April of 2021, about 649,000 retail workers alone quit their jobs, the highest single-month rate since the Labor Department began tracking that figure about 20 years ago. Depending on which surveys you look at, Somewhere between 25% and 41% of workers in the United States right now are thinking about quitting their jobs. Those numbers are even higher for younger workers, like so-called Gen Z employees, aged 18 to 25, over half of whom, 54%, according to one such survey conducted by Microsoft, are considering quitting their jobs in the near future. Surveys conducted in the UK and Ireland found that about 38% of employees across all industries are planning to leave their jobs sometime in the next six months to a year. And another survey conducted in the United States found that 42% of all employees would quit their jobs if their employers did not offer them long-term remote working options. Some of the variables influencing these survey response numbers very well might change in the relatively near future. It's a fair bet, for instance, that some folks who prefer to work from home right now will change their minds as socializing becomes a bit safer and as pandemic-era restrictions are lifted, allowing employees who go into offices the opportunity to go out for drinks after work, to share a lunch, with colleagues, things that aren't as possible or advisable for many people right now, but a lot less possible overall from home offices. It's also possible that remote work-related overwhelm could catch up with more people and thus change some minds on this topic. Remote work has a lot going for it, in the sense that those who work from home or who can choose to work from a coffee shop or a beach instead of an office have quite a bit more agency over their lives and potentially more control over some aspects of how they do their work as well. New data from a recently published study, however, seems to indicate that although folks do often have more control over aspects of their lives, and quite possibly are able to regain time each day that would otherwise be lost to dressing in a particular way or commuting to the office, they also work far less efficiently. And although these data indicate that people are generally producing about the same amount of output as they did from the office, it also indicates that they are taking longer to produce the same amount of work and thus are less efficient, less productive. One very rough figure from that larger data set indicates that people have been working about 30% more, 30% longer in some cases, when working from home in order to produce the same output as they did from the office. 
Analysis of this study's results points toward perhaps temporary trends that could diminish with time, including things like a lack of sufficient childcare assistance for parents, who are often forced to juggle work and taking care of their children when they're at home all day. And possibly, too, just an adjustment to the new realities of working from a couch or a kitchen table instead of a space optimized for work. Such growing pains could disappear or diminish with time if we end up sticking with this kind of setup and if we help employees make a more permanent adjustment in various ways, and that could help change those efficiency numbers. It also seems that a lot of this inefficiency stems from an attempt by managers and other leaders to maintain their situational awareness over their employees in the same ways and at the same cadences as they did at the office, but in a new context in which doing so in those ways is not really possible. And many of their attempts just result in more video or chat-based screen time for people who are trying to get other things done. They're accidentally bogging down their employees' productive hours with unnecessary catch-ups and meetings. This is another thing that could disappear eventually as managers become more confident in their continued provable utility and as a consequence do not feel the need to be seen performatively managing and instead can refocus on actions that actually help their employees rather than just occupying their time for the dubious purpose of making what those employees are doing at home more legible to management. There are other variables influencing these job-quitting figures, however, apart from the desire to maintain more of that working-from-home-derived autonomy and the other benefits that offshoot from it. According to some studies, a lot of people are quitting because their current or recent employers simply are not paying them enough for the work that they do, and increasingly, the risks that they take as a component of that work. And this is especially true as economies have begun to open back up in some parts of the world. And that has led to a situation in which businesses that were shut down and had to lay everyone off or lay off most of their staff are now looking to fully flesh out their entire employee roster all at the same time, at the same time as all those other businesses going through the same thing. This influx in job openings has created a supply and demand advantage for would-be Hires. And as a consequence, many businesses have been forced to figure out if and how they might be able to pay their employees more, even in cases where it would be very unlikely for them to have done the same, lacking this job market catalyzed incentive to do so. This particular variable is running parallel to a fairly recent, or maybe just fairly recently more successful, movement here in the United States to establish a $15 minimum wage, which would represent an increase in some parts of the country of almost 200%. Many entry-level and commodity labor jobs, especially in non-coastal smaller cities and towns, currently pay something like $7 or $8 an hour as minimum wage. That means folks who are unemployed or who are looking for new employment right now are more likely than ever to see very entry-level jobs like flipping burgers at a fast food restaurant or stocking shelves at a big box store or hauling boxes at an Amazon warehouse that are offering $15 an hour wages, plus increasingly other benefits as well, all intended to help that employer flesh out their ranks but also to keep employees they already have. Because again, a lot of these employees 
have wandering eyes at the moment and are considering walking away from their current employment to check out their other options. Some of these employers, and some mostly but not universally more conservative politicians, are not big fans of this new dynamic where employees hold relatively more power than they did just recently, and thus must be more catered to by their employers and would-be employers. It's been claimed, with some supporting data, though this is far from a certain thing, that part of why this dynamic is playing out the way that it is, and employees are enjoying this moment of relative economic influence compared to employers, is that the United States and many other countries have implemented enhanced federal benefits of various kinds for the duration or part of the pandemic. In practice, that means, in the U.S., for instance, that folks who have been unemployed or who lost a huge chunk of their clientele because of COVID-19 or its many repercussions would be able to receive monetary benefits from the government each week. And these benefits, though not massive, have been large enough. It's varied, but the most recent batch of such benefits was $300 a week on top of other potential benefits based on their individual situations and their location. That injection of extra money into people's pockets was large enough that savings levels in the U.S. have increased substantially over the course of the pandemic. So at a time in which we've had historic levels of unemployment, more people have been able to put money away into their savings accounts and pay off debt than in a very long time, which indicates first that people were likely making less than that, less than what these benefits provided before, which is a whole separate conversation and set of concerns that tie back to that push for a $15 an hour minimum wage. But it also indicates to some that people are being incentivized not to take jobs, because if they do, they will no longer be able to receive this basically free money from the government, which isn't an entirely nonsensical proposition, especially if I would earn more or about the same by staying home compared to going to work and laboring and suffering whatever indignities I might face based on my position, and importantly, facing whatever COVID-related risks I might face just by going out into the world and being amongst other people. It is a pretty compelling offer to just stay in, hang tight, wait this out, and be paid for it. And that, ostensibly at least, was a big part of why these benefits were provided as they were. It was to prevent a devastating collapse of aspects of the economy and of people's financial well-being, while also incentivizing people to stay home so that we could work on reducing infection numbers and get vaccines and other such preventatives rolled out without those same people running out of money in the trade-off. That seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to incentivize under such circumstances, because more people out and about without the prophylactic of a vaccine often means higher infection rates. Now, if you're trying to incentivize something else, like getting people to go back to work, I can understand how these benefits might seem a little counterproductive to some people. I will say that there seems to be something a little bit structurally unsound about the implication that we must essentially threaten people if we are going to fill certain jobs. If you can't find employees because the alternatives are better, 
that's probably an indication that you should change something about the jobs that they're required to do and or the compensation that employees receive for doing those jobs. Of course, it is difficult to compete with being paid to do nothing. So this conversation at the moment is kind of a mixed bag. And this aspect of the conversation is probably more about the seemingly fundamental tenets of capitalism as practiced in the United States, more than it is about this specific iteration of those tenets. Some are arguing, though, that it is brutal and not okay that people are being threatened with being kicked out of their houses and starving to death if they refuse to take back-breaking jobs that pay them less than they need to sustain themselves and their families. And that this is exactly what's happening as local politicians cancel some of these additional benefits before the date when they were initially scheduled to end. While others argue that that is just how capitalism works, and if you're not willing to do the work that's available, whatever happens to you as a consequence is your own fault, because you're not contributing to the society in which you live. Again, this aspect of the conversation goes pretty far beyond the topic of this episode, but it's vital to understanding why so many people are quitting right now, and why some people are kind of pissed off about that. One other interesting component of this trend that I think is worth addressing here is that some people seem to be quitting or thinking about quitting or simply not taking new jobs yet because they've had the chance to sit with themselves and think and reassess a bit and have decided to make some kind of change or changes to their lives as a consequence of all that contemplation time that they've had. In some cases, this might mean wanting to work in a different industry or doing different work within the same industry, something that feels more meaningful or satisfying, perhaps, or something that isn't as draining or that doesn't prevent them from having lives outside of work, or maybe something that allows them to live closer to family. In other cases, it means finding a better skill set match for their backgrounds, in their levels of experience, in their education. A lot of jobs in every economy are filled inefficiently. Folks who have doctorates are employed in retail positions, not because they want to work basic retail or are even particularly good at it, but because it was a job that they could get at a moment in which they needed a job. And then they just kind of got stuck there. This pandemic, as much as anything, has served as a giant upset to pretty much every existing variable including things that we maybe would have gotten around to eventually, but didn't previously have the incentive to act on right away. If you're in a mismatched job, the whole economy collapsing and a bunch of new positions opening up might seem like exactly the right moment to make this kind of move. And although this can be inconvenient for the industries that now lack these employees, it is considered to be an overall positive thing for the economy more broadly because it means more people are serving in roles in which they can produce the most value. It's also typically better for those people who are now in jobs that they are more likely to enjoy, to find satisfying, that maybe earns them more money. And it means people are then more likely to stick around and grow in both skill and potential. And that then accumulates within the economy over time. More people in better matched positions means everyone does better on average because the economy is thus more efficient. It is a fair bet that this shakeup will continue for some time into the future 
especially since the economic reopenings that are happening, as of late July 2021 at least, are still somewhat tenuous and may even collapse back into a shutdown state if some new COVID variant comes along and messes with our immunity levels that we've been able to establish with vaccines, or if some sort of black swan event throws everything into a 2020-like tumult once more. It does seem, for the next year or two at least, though, that employees will have relatively more power than they have had for quite some time. And there's a chance that they may be able to formalize that power into power structures like unions, but also maybe just political parties and movements that then allows them to keep growing that influence and thus increases the rights of employees relative to employers after many decades of the opposite. We will also likely see hybrid at-home office work situations made more permanent, with managers getting better at doing their jobs virtually and at a distance, people getting their at-home or near-home setups more optimized for the work that they're doing, and governments implementing measures that help ensure future lockdowns don't have such deleterious effects on their businesses, and thus, at scale, the economies of which they are a part. In the short term, though, we will almost certainly continue to see a resurgent focus on these sorts of employment numbers and will likely see them sharpened, as they have been in the past, by all corners of the ideological spectrum for use as weapons in near-future political conflicts. book that I'd like to recommend today is a really fun read. It's called Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. And Andy Weir is the author who wrote The Martian. And basically, if you enjoyed The Martian, you will almost certainly enjoy this book as well. It has the same sort of narrative approach. It involves a main character using science in clever ways to figure out solutions to problems. And it has a much broader scope than The Martian did in the sense of setting up the world in which this character exists and creating a chain of events that are fairly analogous to what we are facing with climate change and the types of threats that that brings to bear on the planet. But overall, it's just a very enjoyable read. It's got some nice hard science to it, but it's also at appropriate times, fairly speculative and fantastic, which is fun. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're looking for a good fun science fiction read, consider picking up a copy of Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my daily news curating, news summarizing newsletter at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.